Running, running is a terrible, terrible thing. You can do it for several minutes, such as myself, or if you do it for several hours, such as Kylene or Joe or Tom, who's up in the Sierra Mountains right now, running for hours on end. It's just a terrible thing. And here's why it's so terrible, is because it is suffering without a purpose. You run, and you run, and you run, and you run. You make it about this far, if you're me, and then you got to go back. There's no point to it whatsoever. And so suffering without purpose, it brings humanity all the way up to the edge. This is universally recognized. Suffering is not just a, a Christian ideology. No, it's, it's universally recognized. Uh, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jew, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. Uh, in the 20th century, and in his late 30s, he was interned at the Auschwitz concentration camp. Later, he was transferred to the Dachau work camps. And it was in this crucible of these concentration camps that you see the rawest of humanity. Fifteen years later, after the liberation, he writes this book. Uh, it's quite an insightful book. He's not a Christian, but it's a very insightful book titled Man's Search for Meaning, in which he, he wrestles with this of, um, of this idea of suffering and purpose of life. And in this book he writes, if there is meaning in life at all, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. In essence, he goes on to explain in this book, if we know the, if we know the why, we will endure the how? If we know why we're suffering, we'll be able to and we'll be willing to suffer through anything. And he is no Christian. Again, he's no Christian, but he is right to recognize that suffering with a purpose is not suffering in vain. So here in our, our text, you see in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his, his we have our, our sickness and our wound, who shall rescue us? And how shall he do it? And if this God is good, why do we suffer? If God is good, why do we suffer? We will answer that in our text. Starting in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his, his sickness in Judah, his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly, Seek me. Come. Let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we might live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we seek to have lives conformed into Your image, God. And we have so many questions in our own flesh that we don't understand, God, with our own blindness that we don't see, God. I pray that You would reveal to us Your goodness and Your kindness through Your Son, Christ. God, and I pray that we might have hope and hope in You alone. Amen. So just a a brief outline of where we're going to be going before we jump in. main idea, what I hope you cherish throughout the rest of this week, is that through your suffering, seek the face of God. Through your suffering, seek the face of God. not, Not around your suffering, not in spite of your suffering. No, we worship a sovereign God. So through your suffering, through the suffering that He has appointed before you in your life, through this, seek the face of God. So, the end of chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 15, we see the, the purpose of suffering. And we're going to be really focusing in there in the last, uh, the last part of verse 15. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. So, that's the, the purpose of suffering. And then finally, verses 1 through 3, we have the fruit of suffering. Okay, we see the purpose. What's the fruit of it all? Oh, it's that we might have life. Life in Christ. So, through your suffering, seek the face of God. So we talk, then we talk about the, the purpose of suffering and then finally the fruit of suffering as well. Let's, let's go back to the, the text here, verses 13 through 15, and talk about the, the purpose of suffering. So when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or, or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to, the, to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue you. I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, not in their joy, not in the abundance of their life, but no, in their distress, earnestly seek me. So this book about Hosea, the, the, the grand picture is, is not just about suffering, but the, the grand picture is God taking His people from who are not my people and transforming them, bringing them to a place then when they are called sons of the living God. That's the grand picture of Hosea. And it's and it, at the end you see this in chapter fourteen, this beautiful, beautiful poem in chapter fourteen. Hosea writes, "I will heal their apostasy." These are the words of the Lord. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. The setting of what's going on is is quite analogous to another country that you might be very familiar with. At this particular time, Hosea is preaching prophesying to the, the northern kingdom. At this particular time, under, under the reign of Jeroboam II, they have a, a political dominance in their region. They go all the way up north to the entrance of Hamath, which is way, way up north, all the way down south 
to the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea. So way, way north to way, way south, they have dominance. Politically, they're doing great. Socially, they're doing great. Economically, they're doing great. Some might say, record low unemployment. But morally, they're as deep, dark, and depraved as they could be. So this people are blessed by God. And what what is God to do with them? What is He to do with them? Every act of mercy upon them, every blessing upon them, becomes an occasion for further guilt. You see in chapter 10, uh, verse 1, he said, Israel is a luxury uh, vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer the land, the more blessings of God. The richer the land, the better he made his sacred pills. God blesses them. He blesses them abundantly. What do they use? They use their blessings that God has given them to worship false idols. A terrible, terrible thing. And so, to depict the, the unfaithfulness of Israel, God has Hosea marry this lady named Gomer. And before their marriage, and even after their marriage, Gomer was unfaithful. Unfaithful to Hosea. And they enter into this this covenant, this covenant of marriage. And they have three children that we know about. The first one is Jezreel, because God will punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. So God actually appointed Jehu to be king to kill uh, Ahab and all of his house. Remember Ahab, Jezre- uh, Jezebel? Not good. And uh, they're the ones who are uh, opposing Elijah and Elisha. And so Lord appoints Jehu to massacre and kill the house of Ahab. And he does it. He does it very, very well. And a little too much zeal and a little too much blood. So the, we, his first one is named Jezreel and the second one that we is lo rumaha, For God will no longer show love to the house of Israel. So he names the first one after a valley. Names the second one after uh, no love of God. And the third one, joyfully, is lo ami. Not my people. So his mother-in-law must have been thrilled with these, with these names. But just as Hosea enters in this covenant with Gomer, remember God had entered into this covenant with, with, with Israel. There they are, up in the mountains. And they have the blessings and the curses. And they enter into this covenant of marriage, God and His people. And they, they perform their vows. In Israel, they say, everything the Lord has said, we will do. But just as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, so was Israel unfaithful to God. She went outside of her covenant to find what should only be found within the covenant. So Israel goes outside of their covenant with God and they start to follow these false gods. Baal, and Molech, this, this god in which they 
have their arms forward and you would place your baby on the arms of this idol with a fire brewing down below and sacrifice your children. So when you read Moloch, child sacrifice. That's what's going on. And then and they even have their own priest, not the priest of God, but no, they even have their own priest for these high places to mimic the worship of the true God. And this is the backdrop of our story in Hosea of what's going on. The people of God are no longer the people of God. He has given them prosperity, but they have turned it against Him. So then how does He do this? How does He get Israel from not my people to sons of the living God? From these objects of wrath to the objects of love. How does He do this? You see in our text that He does this through suffering. He does it through suffering. Of course, this is this is the last resort for the people. The first option is to run off to Assyria, the great the great empire, as if they will be able to help. So Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, and what did they do? Well, they, they went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But it's useless. God won't allow that to prosper. It's the same thing we do. We want to numb ourselves, so we spend half hour, hour, couple hours a day in social media. Sometimes that's not enough, so we go get some prescriptions and numb ourselves through that way, through antidepressants. Or you just go to the liquor store, numb yourself that way. Or maybe you're, you're a little more dignified, so you go, you don't do drugs, you go relationships, and you go that way. There it is. Turning to someone other to other than God for this healing, for this, but it won't prosper. God will not allow it to prosper. But this this temporal man, this this Assyria, with the king of Assyria, dispel the suffering that God is bringing into their life. No, what can he do? It is brought there by the hand of God, and the king of Assyria can do nothing about it. So then. All of this suffering, is it pointless? Within a full generation, their idol of Assyria, 45, 50, 60 years, their idol of Assyria would come and truly lord over them. Would come and rip open the stomachs of pregnant women and would dash children upon the stones. That's your God? It's the same thing that happens when we turn though to relationships or sex or to drugs or to alcohol. It begins in this, this escape. It then begins to lord over us. And it becomes fatal. But all of this, all of this suffering, it is real. And that's not to be diminished. This suffering is real, but it is not in vain. For it will only last until until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. It's not eternal. It's only temporal. And God is using this suffering. That through their suffering, they will seek the face of God. 
That is the purpose of this suffering that is going on. That is how God is going to bring them from not my people, from objects of wrath to sons of the living God, to my people. And He will make His face shine upon them and be gracious to them. And He does this through suffering. You saw where abundance got them, right? They would just make gold-plated idols instead of idols of stone. No, no, no. It's through suffering that God is bringing His people, drawing His people, drawing you to Him. To Him. So why do we think in our lives that it would be, that it would be any different? It won't be any different in our lives. And I, I know, and I know what you're thinking because I, I have the, the same objections. There must, there must be some other way, right? Or would a loving God do this? Or quite frankly, is it worth it? Okay, so I grind it out week after week, month after month, raising my kids, being faithful to, to love on them and shepherd them. Is it worth it? And then all of these questions we are asking, if God is good, why do these things happen to me? If God is good, why do I suffer? Remember our verses. Remember that God is using this, this their distress, using their suffering to, to earnestly seek me. So as our children, as we see them walking away from the faith, God is using that that you might earnestly seek Him. As, our, as we long for children to come, God is using that. As you long for a spouse, God is using that you might earnestly seek His face. As our, our physical suffering and our bodies begin to waste away, because we're not running like Tom in the mountains. As our bodies begin to waste away and our physical suffering couples with our emotional suffering, even in that, God is drawing you to Him that you would earnestly seek His face. Why is my husband absent? Why is my wife hiding behind his children and pulling away from me? In all of these... We are asking, if God is good, why am I suffering? And, and Hosea would tell us the Word of God. God Himself would tell us that the question is not, if God is good, why am I suffering? The truth is, God is good because you are suffering. Look through it through the lens of Christ. Look through it through the Word of God. Bring your life in alignment with the text. You're not suffering in vain. Your suffering has a purpose and it's something much greater and it's greater than you. You are suffering so that you might have Christ, my friend. It's worth it. This temporal suffering that will pass away is truly, truly worth it. So our eyes might not see it, our eyes might be blind, but the psalmist does not lie in Psalm 100. He writes, For the Lord is good. Period. Debate's over. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. So 
listen to me and, and cherish this in your heart. Do not, do not rebuff the hand of suffering that God brings into your life. Do not rebuff it. God is using it to draw you to Himself for this very hand of suffering that He's bringing into your life is the hand of love. God's love to you that you may be further conformed into the image of Christ through suffering as He did it with the nation of Israel, so too He does it in our lives. So then, how shall we respond? Let's, let's go back to the text here. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come. How do we respond? We come. Let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. He will raise us up on the third day. He who has ears, let him hear, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord, for His going out is as sure as the dawn. His, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There could be no other response, my friend, in light of this suffering that God brings into your life. What are we to do? We come. We come. In your suffering, as you, if you turn away from God, you're exposing your heart. In the first centuries, there was a popular saying amongst the Christians that the same sun that hardens the clay will soften the wax. And so this suffering that God brings into your life, it will either expose your love for Him and it will draw you to Him and draw you to Him, or it will further harden your already calloused heart. And you will become bitter against others and bitter against God. And you're going to blame God. But the fact is that your heart is already calloused. So there's no other response, my friend, but to come. So He has not just torn us. He has torn us that He might heal us. He has not just struck us down. He has struck us down that He might bind us up. There is no healing without a wound. There is no satisfaction without a longing. There is no... God bringing us and making us whole before Him unless we are broken before Him. And if you're still skeptical about suffering and suffering in your life, I want you to see that your suffering is not in vain. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes upon Christ. In Him crucified. There He is. The God of all creation. Broken. Prophet Isaiah would write, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. And He was crushed for our iniquities. And there He is. Wearing this crown of splendor. This crown of thorns. And he's carrying his own instrument of death outside of the city. And they rack him up on the cross. And he's mocked. And he's betrayed. And he's alone. And he is forsaken. And soon he is crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
In those hours, all of God's wrath of hell was poured out on His Son. Remember, you see in our text in verse 2, that after two days He was revived, and on the third day He was raised up. Remember that He is not here. He is risen, just as He said. You read in the Gospels. And His suffering, it is not in vain, but rather it is not just the... We're, we're not deists, we're not just... But it's not something that just happens. But no, it is appointed by God. All of the sufferings of Christ were appointed by God, as Peter writes in First Peter. In chapter 1 he says, The Spirit of Christ in them, that is the prophets, through their writings, was indicating when he was pre- when the predicted sufferings of Christ and these subsequent glories. So these, these predicted, these sovereignly placed sufferings of Christ in His life. So it was not only not in vain, but it was through this that the forsaken one, through suffering, it was the, through suffering that the forsaken one was then drawn back to the Father. Paul writes that Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, He is the one who is at the right hand of God. There's no ascension. There's no glorification of Christ. There's no sitting of Him at the right hand of God apart from this suffering, apart from this crucifixion. There's no resurrection without the crucifixion. Without suffering, this appointed suffering of God in His life, we have none of this and we have no hope and you have no hope. Apart from suffering. Don't be astounded when we have suffering in our own lives. But it is through Christ and His his death and His burial and His resurrection that we have this fruit, this true fruit of suffering. Peter, or Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in, in, in his about this prayer for them that they might know of His power towards us, towards the Christians who, who believe according to the work of His great mind, so that God would work in them as He worked in Christ. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the hand, at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the next. It is in Christ's resurrection that you are raised. It's in Christ's ascension back to the Father that we are going to be able to go back to the Father. So this suffering of Christ, it is real and it is vivid. So in your own life, the suffering is real and it is vivid and we don't diminish that. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. But we know it's not in vain. It is appointed by the sovereign hand of God. And we can look to Christ and Him alone. That the forsaken one, that's you, that's me, that the forsaken one is able to go then back to the Father. All of this happens through Christ and through His suffering. So in your suffering, my friend, do not mock the work of Christ by grumbling. Do not mock the work of Christ by grumbling, but but see it not through your lens, but through the lens of this text and through the lens of Christ that this is appointed by God 
as it was for Christ. And it is for, for your own good. And it is through suffering that we might be able to, as God brought Israel from not my people to my people, it is through suffering that God brings us from not my people, sons of wrath, objects of wrath. Destined for hell, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the dead. Brings us from that to sons of the living God. Through <coughs> suffering, through this crucible of suffering. So you see the suffering of Christ. It was for his good and it was for God's glory. So then in closing, what do we do? What shall we do? Suffer well, my friend. Suffer well. Don't run away from it. Suffer well. God brings you a job that you hate. You have a job. It's okay. Suffer well. You have illness. You wrestle with it. Suffer well. You have children that you weep over because you see them not worshipping the God whom you love. Suffer well. We acknowledge again that this is real and we don't diminish it. You're not going to have your best life now. We're going to have to wait until the next one. But we know that this is only temporal and that it is, it is for your good and all of this suffering is for your good and for God's glory. So then, as Hosea would write, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the spring rain that waters the earth. That is, God will come. Christ will come in the midst of our suffering, through all of our suffering. God will come and He will come and He will bring life. And so when you see your suffering in this light, in the light of Christ that is for our good and for God's glory, then you can truly, in the midst of suffering, consider it a joy when you endure various trials. As Paul would write in Romans 5, that you would rejoice, rejoice in your suffering. As Peter would write later on in chapter 4, but rejoice Rejoice insofar that you share Christ's suffering. Don't, don't be the clay that becomes hard at the sufferings of God that He brings in your life. No, let it melt you. That you might rejoice. That you're taking part in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You can't separate them. They're one and the same. You rejoice now, you will rejoice when His glory is revealed. You rebuff Him now, you will rebuff Him then. Finally, for this light momentary affliction, it is preparing us, preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Delight. Rejoice in your sufferings. My friends, suffer well. Rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that this is further confirming you or conforming you into the image of Christ. 
and all of this temporal suffering, it will fade away at the dawn of this eternal day that is to come. And in that time, we will be crying out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. My text for uh, talk about suffering. The text I preached for our daughter's funeral. It will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So my friends, come. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he might heal us. Let us pray. Dear God, give us hearts to come to you. Though we suffer and we fight and we want to become bitter against you because we know that you place all of this in our lives. God, give us hearts that cry out to you through our suffering. God, draw us to you through our suffering that we, your children and objects of wrath, might become sons and daughters of the living God. Let us suffer well for our good, for your glory. Amen.